It's time for Tycoons of Small Biz, spotlighting the true backbone of the American economy, the true tycoons of business in America, the owners, founders, and CEOs of small businesses. The show's hosts, Austin Peterson and Landon Nance, are registered representatives of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker-dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. The views expressed by your hosts, Austin and Landon, are not necessarily the views of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Backbone Planning Partners is a marketing name for registered representatives of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Now let's lean in as Austin and Landon connect with this week's Tycoons. Good afternoon, Tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I'm your host, Austin Peterson, here as always, coming to you live from our studio in Tempe, Arizona today. And if this is the first time you're listening to our fledgling podcast, um, let me just tell you real quick what, what we do here at Tycoons of Small Biz. So we are a small business podcast put together by small business owners for small business owners. Landon Mance and I are both uh, small business owners. We also have a couple of other partners that are small business owners in this podcast. Um, and we believe that the backbone of the American economy is the small business owner. So in May of 2020, we decided that we would start this podcast and radio program as an opportunity and a way to prop up the small business owner community throughout our country because they they should be celebrated and they they really do drive the economy here in the United States. So with that being said, we definitely have a tycoon on the program with us today. We've got Mike Bradley, CEO of ECD Sim Systems, excuse me, right here in Tempe, Arizona. And one of the things that if uh, if you're listening to this program and you're not from Arizona, this may not mean uh, as much to you, but Mike Bradley is an Arizona native. There are not many Arizona natives that live in Arizona. So Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're excited to to learn a little bit about you and uh, and hear your story. So You've got an interesting background. You've got a bachelor's degree in uh, in music from Arizona State University, right. which is probably the first and only uh, business owner that we will interview on our program that has a bachelor's in, in music. But tell us about you personally. I mean, obviously, we know you've got that bachelor's degree in music, but you grew up here in Arizona. What was your family life growing up? Are you married today? Do you have kids, grandkids? Tell us what you'd like us to know about you personally. Well, as little as possible. Uh, <laughs> no, I I, uh, I did grow up out here. I uh, actually have a my grandmother on my father's side came out uh, in 1901 in a covered wagon on a cattle drive. My grandfather on the Bradley side came out uh, a few years later uh, on a train, and they met out here. And so sort of a pioneering family background. My father was born in 1917 here, and uh, I was born... Long time ago, here and raised here, and I've got family here and uh, seven grandkids now, and and uh, I had opportunity to go other places in the country and could never come up with a really good reason to do that. So I've just stayed put. I love it. I uh, business wise, how I got into business a little odd. Uh, you're right. I do have a music degree. Uh, when I finished college, I actually taught high school uh, for three years. And uh, during that period of time, I had very little income. Uh, my wife actually was working at ASU part-time, making more than I was full-time teaching. And I, we tried to buy a house after our first year of marriage, couldn't qualify. Actually, we had qualified, but then interest rates went up to about 16.5% before we closed. That was about 1980. 
I went to the mortgage company and I said, what do I do? They said, well, if you could come up with a little more income, we could probably get you into this loan. How much do I need? She said, about $3,500 a year. So I got a part-time job working for somebody I'd worked for in high school. And it was in the contracting business, but it was technology, electronics. And uh, so he offered me a job. He offered to pay me $3,700 for that summer job. I got a letter from him and took that letter down to the mortgage company and qualified for the higher interest rate on the loan. Got the house and never looked back. So I worked there part-time for a couple of years, making good money in sales, actually. And I think music helped me a lot. You know, the creativity, the willing to step up and be outgoing. Yeah. That's how I got into the industry. And that's, the music didn't last long, but I still enjoy it. And uh, got my way through college with my voice, singing. Actually sang at graduation at ASU. I was the first student ever to be on the platform. I was there with Irma Bombeck, if you remember her. And uh, she got an honorary degree. And I sang the national anthem and the alma mater of ASU, which should have been rewritten a long time ago. <laughs> That's awesome. I So most of our listeners don't know this. Uh, some people that know me very close, you know, very well know that I love to sing, actually. Um, it would be my dream to throw out the first pitch and sing the national anthem at Fenway Park. Wow. That would that would be my lifelong dream of dream. If I could do that, I could I could die the next day and be a happy man. That's a great bucket list item. Yeah. Yeah. So anyhow, about the business side of it, uh, my father was a broadcast engineer. Uh, he actually prior to that was a Phoenix police officer. Uh, my family built homes out here. Uh, in Tempe, there's still a lot of Bradley homes around. Uh, and uh, Uncle Elmer Bradley was the mayor of Tempe back in about 1969, 70. And uh, so I grew up around this area. Uh, my father is a broadcaster, got my interest going in electronics, but I didn't have the aptitude for the detail. But once I got into sales, I loved that side of it. And so cut my, my teeth selling. Uh, not long after that, I was asked to grow a sales department for that same company and asked to be a sales manager. I had no experience at that. Figured it out over time. Uh, later, our owner of the company, uh, 49 years old, contracted brain cancer, and we lost him a year later. In the meantime, he had installed me as the president of this company. And at the time, I, when I went on board, it was about $2 million company. We, at that time, were about $4 million company. And, and so he, when he passed away, I took over this little business with about 35 employees and the bankers and everybody else and his new wife saying, you know, most businesses are not going to survive this kind of tragedy. Well, we survived. We took that business from $4 million to $8.5 million uh, in about six years, and I left to pursue my own business and ended up getting captured by another family business uh, and taken off my track again. Uh, Safeguard Security up in Scottsdale, uh, the Jennings family, became my next family business that I went in on. I was asked to uh, manage a little company called ECD, which is Electronic Contracting and Design at the time. It was a little small business that they had just bought. They were adding on. So Safeguard was, uh, with that addition, was about an $8 million company. Over the next 18 years, I ended up within a year or two as the president of Safeguard, worked with the Jennings family to grow that business. We took it to almost 40 million. And uh, then they decided to sell. And when they sold the business, uh, the company that bought us had no interest in what I loved, which was the construction contracting side of our technology business. And so I offered to buy that piece of it. 
So about 8 million a year is where we were at at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had been bigger than that, but this was 2008 and 2009. <laughs> so things had, you know, gone down. Yes, sir. And uh, we were trying to come back out of that. And uh, so I picked up the business at uh, about the assets, about 8 million in revenue, had about 45 employees. I took it with me, the contracts, the customers and the products. And uh, today we're, <laughs> for a couple of years now, because of COVID, we've been sitting at about 20 million. So I'm growing it again. So that's three businesses that I've helped to grow. This last one, my own. I have two partners. Our CFO from the previous company is a minority owner and our COO, which is the operations director for the business. He's my partner and a minority owner as well. And uh, we've had a lot of fun. Yeah. No, it sounds like you've had some great uh, successes and you've gone through some difficult times, right? So, you know, COVID was different, but as far as business is concerned, you know, it, 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 it was a different cause, let's put it that way, but the outcome was essentially the same as 2008, just much, much shorter, right? Yes. And so you had to well, be in a, not yet. Well, still going on. Yeah, it's still it's still <laughs> going on, but the the very very negative effects for most businesses were felt on a you know on a shorter time period right. than than in 2008. So, what do you think that you know? So that's three separate businesses. One of them that you own, two of them that you were an employee in, but had some, you know, pivotal roles. So what what were the common elements as far as you're concerned that led to the success in all three businesses? Great people. There's just no doubt about it. Uh, the, uh, you know, it, every business at some level is a people business. You know, it's all service. And uh, the ability to perform uh, and be outstanding in the eyes of your customer is the result of good people. It doesn't really matter whether it's an internet business or person-to-person business or contracting business like ours. Uh, it's all about finding the right people and encouraging them to stay with you as long as you can get them. And uh, and then always looking for people that are better than I was. And so I, I don't know that I'd say it's a talent, but I did have a knack early on for finding people that were better than I was, that were could take us to another level because I kind of understood at an early age my limitations. Uh, you know, I have my specific strengths and I have plenty of weaknesses. And my job was to, especially if you're going to grow a company, you have to be able to let go and you have to let go to people you can trust. And if you don't hire and grow those people to the point where you can hand things over, you will not grow. And I've that little $2 million business that Safeguard bought back in 1998 was an example of that. Uh, great little, great couple, had a small family business, I tried to hire management, could never let go. When we bought the business and I came in to run it, uh, her fingernails were in every aspect of that business. And it took two years to really dissolve all of that and start to get new people in and, and grow that company. So it, it really is all about the people. There's more to it than that, of course, but. Yeah. I mean, I, I tell you, obviously you've got to surround yourself with good people, but there are a couple of things that, that you said that really stuck out to me that I've seen over my 20 year career with working with business owners, that is a recurring theme. It's that they can't let go, right? They can't, they can't let go and get out of their own way with certain things. Um, and they, they have a hard time recognizing what their strengths and their weaknesses are and letting others that are better at certain aspects take, take over. Right. Right. And then the other thing is is just li- giving up control and and understanding that it's okay to give up control and their ego doesn't get out doesn't get out of their own way in hiring people that are, as in your words, better than them. 
right? right? Uh, it's, you know, I, I can't remember exactly who, who it was that said it. Maybe it might've been Bill Gates, but hire, no, I think it was Steve Jobs actually said, hire, hire people that are smarter than you and, and let them tell you what to do, not the reverse, right? It's not a trait though. Being able to do that is not natural, especially to people with an entrepreneurial spirit. We have a tendency to think that nobody knows better than we do. We have a tendency to <clears throat> stand on our successes and claim uh, victory and not uh, acknowledge those that helped us get there. And so it does take practice. It takes an intentional approach to be able to let go. But again, uh, any entrepreneur that has grown businesses over the years and didn't hit those ceilings or got past those ceilings, and there are several of them as you grow a business, uh, without that trait and ability to let go and trust, uh, you cannot grow the business. There just is only there are only so many hours in the day. You've only got so much bandwidth, and it, it's hard. It really is hard to do. But I uh, maybe it's part of my nature to be a little bit lazy. <laughs> <laughs> that allowed me to let go a little bit. If I found somebody that did, did it better than me, it was easy for me to say, you know, I don't really like doing that anyhow. I'm not an accountant. Yeah. I, I'm not an operations guy. I'm really a sales and marketing guy at heart. And But you have to have all those other things. Well, obviously, we're going to get good people. Uh, so it really is, it's really that simple. I'm a huge fan of the Good to Great book and uh, Jim Collins. Yeah. Read that a long time ago when it first came out. Studied it. Actually used to teach classes at industry events mm -hmm. on, the, on the subject and his, his ideas. And yes, getting the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, and then getting the right people in the right seats yep. is easy to talk about. It's hard to do. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. And it's funny you mentioned that because I just I just re-listened to Good to Great and Built to Last in mm -hmm. the last couple of weeks. When I go out on my runs, I'll listen to a book. And and those are those are ones that I thought, you know what, I haven't listened to these since business school. I'm mm -hmm. going to go ahead and listen to them again and, you know, kind of refresh my memory on on those concepts. Well, by the time I read uh, Good to Great, uh, it was already becoming obsolete because the companies he put on the pedestal didn't all do well. Yeah. And Built to Last was an obvious need uh, for him to come in. And, and I've met him a couple of times and, and sat under his seminars a couple of times. He had to, to acknowledge that gaining success and being coming from a good company, being a great company, does not mean it will last. There are other traits that companies have to uh, practice in order to last, to grow, to continue that success. And uh, one of the failures was in the pharmacy world. Yeah. And so he did explain that, but we, at some point, having read that first book, I said, okay, there's got to be a reason to let this happen, right? So what else are we missing here? Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm a, I love that, uh, the concepts that he had, you know, things like the hedgehog theory, yeah. not a good to great, uh, terribly important. Uh, I'm not, I find it hard to practice because I'm a little ADD, you know, there's a lot of good ideas out there. Yep. So I, I do find myself being a victim of of uh, my interest in new things and ideas, but, you know, burying yourself in there and being really good at what you do, understanding your purpose, terribly important too. And I get your people to understand that. Yeah. Well, if you, if you haven't read Essentialism and Effortless by Greg McEwen, M-C-K-E-O-W-N, you should go and, and check those out. So he's, he's actually going to be on our show in a few weeks. He's going to be um, our guest on our 100th episode coming up oh, on great. April 12th. 
And he, he talks about priority, right? Mm-hmm. Have one priority and, and essentialism. And, you know, there's only so much effort that one person can put into a day. And so you're going to hit that plateau that you were talking about earlier. Right. So definitely worth, worth a read if you have a, if you have a minute, it was on the New York times bestselling, you know, bestselling list. And, sounds good. So, um, sounds like good advice. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll share one thing when, uh, that first experience I had in management and when our owner passed away, I lived in, uh, South Phoenix, Ahwatukee area and uh, drove across the river every day up toward Sky Harbor Airport. And that's where our business was. Mm-hmm. It gave me about 15 or 20 minutes to think. And I tried to turn off the radio and I got in the habit on those early days of thinking, what can I, of all the things that I could do today, what am I going to do or can do that will have the most impact? And then everything else falls off the list. Yep. And I found that to be a good tool for myself. And, and I tried to teach others to practice that. You've only got so much bandwidth. What are the things that if you do them right now are going to have the greatest impact? And don't worry about the other things have a tendency to take care of themselves anyhow, or they need to be delegated to somebody else. Uh, helped me a lot. Yeah. And uh, I was in my 30s when that happened, early 30s. Yeah. So I thought I knew it all and quickly realized <laughs> I didn't know much at all. Yeah. Well, I would say you were ahead of the curve in, in recognizing that and realizing it, especially nowadays with the electronic, you know, devices that we have and, and our, our attention gets diverted so quickly and so easily. And we're, you know, we're trying to have five different IM conversations. And we've got these emails open and we've got, you know, a web page open. You're, you're trying to do too much. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, he talks about that in, in essentialism as well, where, you know, you take time to focus on the one thing. What is, what am I going to be able to do that will have the most impact for my business or for my personal life or whatever it is for that day that you're focusing on for my family, for my relationship with my wife, whatever, whatever it is, what's the one thing that I can do today. And you kind of let everything else fall by the side and you end up, you end up finding yourself to be more successful in everything by doing that. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's CEOs. I mean, he mentions it in the book. I think it was the CEO of LinkedIn, um, Jeff, I forget what his last name is, but he sets aside two hours a day in four 30 minute blocks to do just that. Everything's off. Do what you did in the car where you're focusing on that one thing and trying to figure out what that one thing is for that day. And then that helps, you know, set the path for the rest of the day. One of the things related to that, we talk about your people around you is the huddle, which, you know, is kind of an old term, been around a long time, but that helps to accomplish that too. And we get so busy that we don't take the time to pull our teams together and refocus on why are we here? What is your job? What is the, what, what's going, what is the measurement? What are we going to accomplish? And it doesn't take long to do it at all. It can be 10 or 15 minutes. I know those who have multiple offices, businesses spread across multiple geographics, uh, they find that to be critical yep. to make it work. And I'm fortunate that everything we do is right here in the Valley. But uh, I even still, it's time to just, we have to take the time to meet. We don't have to make them long meetings, just focusing. Yep. So we can do it ourselves personally, but I think it's then our job to lead our people to that. Yeah, it's funny. If I if you were to look at my calendar right now, you'd see a Friday afternoon, 1.30 in the afternoon is my huddle with my administrative assistant, Lindsay. Mm-hmm. And we sit down and we talk about what's coming up the next week and what do we need to be focused on. And it's, uh, you're right. And and 
It is. She's not in the same geography as me. Our administrative staff is in Las Vegas and her husband in the military is being transferred. So they're moving to Oregon in a couple of months and she's staying on. She, you know, she was scared to death that <laughs> she was going to lose the job when, when she uh, got transferred or, or he got transferred to Oregon. And you can close that gap by using technology and having those focus sessions where where you make sure that you're on the same page. Yeah. The mobile workplace right now, this spreading everybody back to home or wherever they go, I I have opinions about that. I think we've overdone it too quickly and we're not quick to get people back together. But uh, to the extent that it's necessary, uh, you have to have a plan to overcome the natural disconnect that occurs. And the disconnect is not just about the relationships. It's about the focus on what are you here for? Yeah, You know, and what is their job? Yes, we lose efficiency. Uh, yes, we lose, to, to a great extent, we lose the contact, the trust with that. You know, I uh, had an interesting experience at the beginning of COVID. We, I had just bought our building uh, and uh, over here in Tempe uh, by Rio Salado. And uh, that was November of 2019. We moved everybody in in January, getting this place all set up. We're excited. Then uh, late February hit, March hit, we sent everybody home because we were told everybody needs to do that. I walked in in April to the office. We only had a skeleton crew there. And I looked around and I said, I must be the biggest idiot in the world. I just spent, in this case, two and a half million dollars on this building. We remodeled it. We got it ready. And it's empty. What have I done? And then I realized, dang it, I miss everybody. And I realized this is a big building and I mandated everybody come back despite the recommendations. And yeah. I maybe take a little criticism for that, but it worked great for us because we were able to spread out. We never had a single issue uh, with the virus in our office. And uh, it, it just, I think it meant a lot to us because our people were used to the camaraderie, they're used to the water cooler talk, the used to having lunch together, used to walking down the hallway and talking to somebody. I think the fact that we're losing that right now, uh, managers, owners of companies need to take a really close look at that and rethink this whole thing. While I can work from anywhere, there are some jobs that I don't disagree with, but most jobs require people to interact well with each other and, and face-to-face. Yeah. So that's just my opinion. I know that others have different opinions about it. Yeah, I mean, I I tend to to agree or actually see both sides, right? And it depends on what it is that you do for for a business and how critical it is that you be, you know, in person. But even if it's not critical, that doesn't mean that it's the most efficient way to build your company or that you're going to find the most success, right? right? And I mean, you mentioned it earlier. You know, you were talking about. Um, you know, the, the camaraderie that that's, that's built. Right. And, and you're a marketing and a, you know, a sales guy. We have a, so Landon and I, in our practice, we have a pretty good brand. We know what it is that we do, but I don't think that we've done a fantastic job of communicating that to the world. Right. So we're going through this process right now where we're, we're meeting with brand and marketing specialists and we're trying to kind of hone that message and make sure that it's exactly what we want it to be. Okay. Well, I just told you that our administrative staff is mostly in Vegas. That's where Landon is. So Landon interacts with them more than I do with me being here in Phoenix. But going through this process, we wanted to make sure that our entire team was involved. And so we're all sit- they're all sitting in this room together 
And then I come in virtually for this meeting, the initial meeting we have with Brandon Marketing. And the feedback that I get the next day in our huddle call with Lindsay is, I've already loved being here with this company. I love what you guys do, what you guys represent. But being involved in that and seeing the vision and hearing from you guys personally what the vision of the company is and what you want to communicate to the world made me feel that much more connected to this company and the future of this company. Uh That gets lost Uh if you don't have those opportunities to gather as an entire team and talk about those types of things. Yeah, and even if it is virtual, you have to be intentional. We, we, it sounds like you kind of stumbled into that. Yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of us get lucky and we'll hold events or do things. And then we realize that was important. Yep. We should do that more intentionally. Uh, you know, we do some of that too in our company. I've got about 115 staff in our company. 70% of them are in the field. We don't get to see much of them. They're out on job sites and we're building hospitals and building, putting technology in hospitals and schools and apartment complexes, which is going nuts around here. We have a huge multifamily housing business doing technology in those. So we don't get to see them. We don't really want them coming by the office because that's inefficient. We take stuff to them. They have their own huddles. But we have to get them together three or four times a year. And the fact that we couldn't even use a hotel to do that, because I don't have a big enough place for everybody, really crimped our style for a bit. And once we got everybody back together here again, and we... Uh, matter of fact, a hotel right across the street from where we're sitting today allowed us to come in, hmm. uh, and it made such a difference. I always attend those. I I uh, have to get up earlier than I'm comfortable with because this is a construction industry, and these guys start at five o'clock in the morning. But <laughs> uh, but I go and I I talk about my view. You know where are we at? What's what's going on? And I make our other staff, sales and operations and, and engineering, we have them attend as well. Even though this is about the field guys, the guys that are working with their hands and tools and putting the technology in, we we mingle so they understand there are more elements to this. We have to be intentional about doing that because if we don't, it won't happen on its own. Yeah, There's plenty to do, and we're all way too busy. Yep, everybody's busy. They're focused on their job, which you want them focused on their job. But if, you, like you said, if you're not intentional about team building and helping everybody to understand what the driving force is behind your company, right. it, it's not going to happen. All right, so let's take a quick break. We'll hear a quick call to action, and we'll come back and kind of talk about some of the key indicators that you keep your eye on, on uh, for the company. Sure. Hey there, Tycoons. Austin Peterson here, co-host of Tycoons of Small Biz. If you think you have what it takes to be considered a tycoon and you're wondering how you could become a featured guest, please follow and then message us at Tycoons of Small Biz on LinkedIn. We'd love to have a conversation with you to see if it is a mutually good fit. And if so, we'll get you scheduled for an interview. If you're unsure about being a guest on our podcast, but are contemplating selling your business over the next few years and you'd like to know what your business is worth, Please also follow us and then message us on LinkedIn for your no obligation, informal valuation of your business. We look forward to hearing from you and thanks for listening to the Tycoons of Small Biz podcast. And now back to today's program. All right, Tycoons, welcome back. We're here with Mike Bradley, CEO of ECD Systems, and we've we've unpacked uh, quite a bit the things that he's done over the years to be successful and, and uh, the importance of his team at the company. So, Mike, tell us a little bit as as the CEO what what exactly that you are keeping your eye on each day. What are the key indicators that you keep your eye on to to know that you know the businesses are healthy? Again, 
this is maybe because I'm kind of a marketing sales guy. I get a little lost in the, and sometimes in the details. And, and so because my head doesn't work that way. Uh, as a musician, I actually, uh, and I learned this a long time ago, there's a left brain, right brain. I'm not the engineering type. So I'm not a numbers guy. Yep. Uh, I have to force myself to get in, interested in the numbers while they make a lot of sense. So I had to figure out what are the things that I need to keep an eye on every day so I could know if it starts to smell, I know where to go, right? And, and, and so, you know, when you have a business our size, and even a small business, you know, you get distracted and something starts stinking, but you don't really know why. And you don't have the data to tell you where to go look and what to fix. You can't fix something if you don't understand it, right? Yep. And so we kind of use, and this is something I learned from my mentor, John Jennings at Safeguard years ago, was, uh, you know, you, you, you want to jump on things as quickly as possible. So from a numbers point of view, um, I, I really, uh, I keep an eye on cash uh, <laughs> and cash flow. Um, you know, small businesses fail because they fail to have cash or they don't manage cash flow most of the time. That really is what puts them out of business at the end of the day. Yep. It's not their ideas. It's not their energy. And generally, it's not uh, lack of customers. It's lack of cash. Uh, to understand that, you know, we think that larger businesses are floating in it. And the answer is they're not necessarily. Some are. Uh, and, and as I grew the business, I had to reach out, you know, lines of credit, that sort of thing to be able to handle the swings of cash flow needs. So I have all of that in place. I have safety nets, but I don't like to use them. Sure. Of course, the banker doesn't want to hear that right now. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so I, I really, I watch cash like a hawk and I, we have a meeting every week, uh, with the accounting team and our service uh, manager and a couple other managers that influence cash. In other words, what influences, why aren't you paying the bill? Well, this didn't get done and you sent me an invoice anyhow or whatever. We have to get that fixed. We need to know where those problems are. And so we meet on cash every week. We sit down and we go through our receivables, uh, which, you know, it's not inconsiderable when you have a $20 million company. And uh, we go over the numbers starting from the worst, you know, the over 120 day down to the 90 to 120 and so forth. And we talk through every single receivable to the point that we get into that 30-day, 60-day receivable. And then I ask the question, is there anything you need help with? Because we have a person concentrating on collections. So I watch that. I watch what's flowing through. I watch the bank balance. I watch the cash very carefully. Because I can tell that if that starts to uh, creep negative. In other words, and something like uh, days outstanding, watch that real closely. You know, yeah. I, in our business, I like to see uh, days outstanding on invoices of around 40 to 45 days, which is actually pretty good, especially in this world right now. Yeah. When it starts creeping up into the fifties, I start asking questions. You know, in other words, starting to stink a little bit. Let's go find out why. Is something getting rotten here? What What do I need to help with? What do I need to get another manager involved? Because maybe the, the person in charge of collections uh, is struggling and not willing to ask for help. So that's a good indicator yep. for me. Uh, obviously, we get our report card every month with our P&L. I'm shocked at how many small businesses don't even really have a real P&L. Uh, I, I see them all the time. I talk to people all the time that, well, you know, we get our year end. <laughs> well, how the heck do you know how you're doing? I mean, what your report card is that monthly P&L and your chart of accounts and matching up your budgets and to your actual and that sort of thing. Uh, this is how you 
know where things are going well and where they're not. You know, we everybody hates budget processes, especially when you're a small business. Yep. But if you don't do them, you have no, you have nothing to measure against. In other words, what's the goal? And now, how are we doing against that goal? And frankly, uh, this it's been all over the map the last two years. It's yep. not been predictable, but we still did it. We still had that. So that is something uh, I, I'm pretty open with our company and especially managers sharing that PNL, and uh, we talk it through every month. We meet very purposefully to go through every detail and ask questions. And I talk about things I'm a little worried about. I have our accounting manager, our controller, have her talk. What are the things you're bothered by? And uh, and we get a lot out in the open going through that. That's kind of a big picture thing, but you know the reality is you know we intended let's say we intended last month to make eighty grand in the net, and we did thirty, or we lost thirty. Yeah, I mean that happens. Yep. You know, not every month looks great. Uh, hopefully, the end of the year does. Another another thing that I watch carefully is our sales funnel. So uh, we meet on that once a month with our sales team and we go through every quote that's out there, every job that's out there. And we have every salespeople in every salesperson in the huddle explain where they're at with each one of these and why it's, and we have forecasting. So we have a whole forecasting system in our accounting system. We go through that in detail. So, because I know, uh, for instance, that, uh, you know, in our world, we need to, we, we get about 30 to 40% closure rate. So if I want to, close $20 million, I have to quote $60 million, and I need to have that constantly in the funnel, and I need to know which ones are working, which ones aren't, and size of project in our world matters. Is it a $5,000 job? Is it a $500,000? Is it a million-dollar job? Because yep. that's going to impact our resources. So I'm looking at that funnel all the time, and our operations director is sitting there too. So he knows what's coming, and then he can ask questions about what's the real expectation. So we really work on that funnel watch that very, very closely. You know, there are other little things. I, I, <laughs> I sign every check. Mm. Now, that might sound a little odd for somebody that's been doing this 40 years and you got that large a business. Why do I sign the checks? Uh, I don't have to. And sometimes I don't. I'm out of town. Uh, but I sign them because it gives me a sense of the flow, what the cash is being spent on. I, I rarely find something that I disagree with. And when I do, I bring it up to the controller and she'll explain why it's the way it is. So she's rare. It, I don't find mistakes so much as I need to understand the trends. Gas <laughs> yeah. right now. Yeah. I mean, they go into our bank account. We use a fleet management. Every day, they take their money out of our bank account for, for the gas. So I have to, you know, what is it right now? Is it was running 11 thousand dollars a month right now it's running 14 gas went up 40 cents yesterday 40 cents a gallon it went up from sunday to monday yep. what's it going to look like this week what can i do about that not a lot but a message went out this week from me saying let's be careful with this let's let's be a little more efficient in our planning let's don't drive if you don't have to make sure those tires are aired up this is, i haven't done that reminder since 2008 yeah right and yep. and now here i am again having to say those same things all over again so, so I, we watch, I watch that, you know, the, where the money's going. I also watch the payroll because um, that gives me an idea of our efficiencies or inefficiencies uh, because I know what the numbers should be. We pay every week, so it's very yeah. easy for me to watch that. And uh, I know the dollar amount, and I know that if it goes above a certain dollar amount that we're probably putting in more overtime. Well, who's paying for that? 
Yep. How long can we pay that over time before it starts to really impact the bottom line? You see, though, so those are the major things. It's, it's half a dozen things, maybe. Yep. It's not 30 things that I'm looking at. If those are all lined up pretty good, then I know the company's pretty healthy and I can worry about other things. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, like I said, I've been doing this 20 years, work mainly with business owners. And uh, the only thing that you said there that was shocking to me was that you still sign every check. Yeah. Uh, except for when you're when you're out of town. Now, you know, most are still watching it closely, right? I mean, they're 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 getting a report once a week that shows what went out and they're asking questions about it, but signing every check is something that I rarely hear with a business your size. Well, here's an example of why that paid off or pays off. In the check run, and I again, I could take a report and look at the report, but I remember I told you I'm not I'm more of a hands-on kind of guy as far yep. as touchy feel tactical or tackle tactile. Ran the, the checks came through Monday. In the check run were two checks as rebate or re refunds to two customers on one of our new businesses. We never do that. We almost, it's rare to ever have to refund anything. So immediately I'm signing them and I don't know who these people are. I look in there and I realize it says re refund on the, on the uh, ticket behind. And so I get up out of the chair and I'm going asking questions. Now, if I just looked at it in the report and I said X number of dollars and I might have just skipped right over that, that's just me. It's a personal thing more than yeah. anything else. Uh, you know, I, I know I don't have to, and it's not a huge burden. It takes me 15 minutes, but it does give me a sense. I, I can ask questions. When I've seen the check, I remember in a meeting that, that we'll be having, I'll say, you know, why are we buying so much from these guys? We used to buy from these guys. What's changed? Is it pricing? You know, loyalty matters to me in this business. Why did we shift from this vendor to that vendor? Yep. Do we and and sometimes I don't get a good answer, so we might shift back. That's how I connect. Yeah. No. I, I mean, it makes it makes perfect sense. It's just that was that was mm -hmm. the one thing that hmm, made me you know made me think and want to ask you know a little bit further. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about your industry. You know, overall, I mean, electronic control. What does the D stand for? Design? Well, okay. The, the ECD today doesn't stand for anything. <laughs> uh, electronic Contracting and Design was a company from 1985. Yeah. It was when it was formed. I just took the three letters when I created a new corporate, a new company, and then I bought the assets into that. ECD, our tagline is Effective, Connected, and Dependable. Okay. I didn't make that up. Marketing company did. Yeah. And I thought it was pretty good, so we created a tagline. Yeah. What we really do is connected building technologies. So every building everywhere is full of technologies, various levels, very level, various levels of complexity. This building we're in today has a fire alarm system. Every building out there is required of over a certain size, and it's pretty small, by the way, has to have a fire life safety system for evacuation. Hopefully, they'll never go off. But if you're in a hotel and you got evacuated, it was guys like me and our company that put that fire alarm system in and all the noisemakers. It's a mandated code business, so it's pretty steady. Not the most profitable thing we do, but we understand it and do it very well. Yeah. Uh, so we're connecting all that, putting that in the building. We do a lot of security. Your, your cameras you see around now, a lot of access control systems, the key fobs, that sort of thing. The most fun we have uh, is working in the healthcare industry. We do a lot of work with hospitals in Arizona, and we're putting in clinical, uh, uh, critical technologies uh, for that in, it enhance the nurse's experience and the patient experience. So, you know, you, if you've ever been in a hospital, you got a button there, you can push a button, and uh, maybe a nurse will come. We do that. 
but it's so much more nowadays. We, we know where the nurses are. They, they don't have enough time to be sitting in front of a station somewhere waiting for a call to come in and know, and then go jump up and go take care of it. So we track where they're at. We do mo- use mobility and phones to send information about the patient and what they need so that we dispatch the right people. We also collect tremendous amounts of data uh, that help with things like fall risk analysis. So you're in a hospital and they want, and one of the greatest concerns they have is you might fall and end up suing them. They cost a fall costs fifteen to twenty five thousand dollars every time somebody falls in a hospital. That adds up yeah. to big money. So we provide data on, on risk assessment and that sort of thing as well. Uh, so that is a lot. We work with nurses. I have uh, 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 RN retired on staff. She's got a uh, advanced degree in informatics, which is the whole idea of taking data and how do you increase the healthcare environment and improve patient outcomes. And so we do that sort of thing as well. It's all data-based. It's all networks and servers and and uh, complex stuff. <laughs> yeah. So I love that stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, you just mentioned one thing that you've done because the next question I was going to ask you is, is technology is always changing. Right. So like you said, the the fire systems, the sprinkler systems or, you know, whatever it is that was kind of the base and it's, that's your vanilla uh-huh. stuff. Everything else has kind of changed. It's the key fobs. It's the, you know, all those kinds of things. Maybe there's speaker systems throughout the buildings right. or you've got, you know, the audio visual, the cameras, all that kind of stuff. And then the hospital side, even more where it's, you've got to pull in, you know, the medical stuff. So what is it that you guys are doing beyond hiring somebody with an advanced degree in informatics and, and a retired nurse to kind of stay on top of the trends in your industry and make sure that you guys don't become, you know, one of the good to great companies that right. grew and was great. And then all of a sudden their industry changed and they were gone. Well, first of all is understand how quickly it's changing. On the technology side, it became all about the network for us. And a number of years ago, we realized that we weren't just connecting things with a pair of wires. We were dealing with wireless. We were dealing with the internet networks, wide area networks. Uh, things were changing very quickly. And our products would eventually end up riding on all that. And so we started investing in our people to train them on these technologies. Uh, we call it ITIQ. So I needed a lot of people in our company to become experts in the IT world. I started hiring designers, engineers, uh, others, and very expensive, by the way. <laughs> but I can also raise my prices once I have an ITIQ, which I did. So I paid for it. You know, I got to make an investment first, and then you get it back later. And so we've made tremendous investments. I've got a whole group just doing design and engineering of the networks, all of the technologies that ride on them, and then negotiating all that with the hospital or the school system or uh, the business to how we're going to ride on their network because they have IT guys too that are very particular about who yeah. touches their systems. And so we have to negotiate with them and we have to have an IQ capable of talking on that level. That's where the investment has been. It's also allowed us to advance into newer technologies, not be tied to the past. Uh, and it's also allowed us to add new businesses to the business. Yeah. So tell us, tell us more about that. I mean, what, what have you done to add more businesses over the years and what was the driving force behind that? Yeah, I grew up in a time when Arizona wasn't very big, right? I grew up when, you know, today we have oh, seven and a half million people in Arizona. We're one of the largest next to California, largest state in the Southwest. 
compared yeah. to California or excuse me, uh, Nevada and Colorado, Utah, et cetera. Yeah. But that wasn't always the case. And a business like ours had to have diversity. And I'm not talking about people. <laughs> I'm not talking about DEI. I'm talking about diversity of products, diversity of things that you do. In other words, multiple verticals that we worked in in order to create enough business to grow because it just wasn't enough in the little niches to grow a company. So I grew up around building multiple models. That may sound like we're unfocused, but it all revolves around skill sets. And we found other things we could do that were used the same skills we had for other products and other technologies we installed. And uh, one of the things we did, I had a former employee who came to me uh, not long ago and said, uh, I'm ready to leave this other company. I'm done with it. Uh, I have a business plan for the residential business. And having done the residential business for many, many years at Safeguard, I said, I'll never do that again. <laughs> and uh, But he came up with a business plan that works only with the high-end builders, only working on the what we call a spec home. These spec homes start at a million, $2 million, yeah. so they're pretty high-end. And so uh, in November of 2019, I brought that in and said, I'll fund that and let's grow that. Let's start, start a new residential business. And then COVID hit and they stopped building homes. And I went a year and a half with literally no business, but we kept the people, we kept working the plan. And right now it's going through the roof and it uses all of the technologies we're talking about. And all those people that I'd put together are now able to support this high-end uh, technology in the homes, which I've got it in my house. Absolutely amazing what I'm able to do. Uh, and what I control, and it's and it's seamless. Used to be pretty chunky and clunky and yeah. not reliable. Today we're able to make that stuff real reliable. Uh, and then uh, bought a little company back in November of last year uh, to do uh, support uh, for computer desktop and business support. That they have the IT experts in the business, but they don't have enough time to take care of all the little details and the security and the cybersecurity and so forth. They're working on big picture. And so we started a, a managed services business that we're just now getting off the ground, bought a little company to help move that along. And again, it uses all of those resources that I've been building up and it gives our people something else to look forward to. They can advance, they can go into things that they would have been pigeonholed in before. So uh, it's really, the business is really now three different businesses. And again, it's diversity of revenue. Yeah. Actually, it's right now diversity of expense, but <laughs> but eventually they get to the point where they're making money and they're real, real close on the residential business. Yeah. No, and I think that the third one that you just mentioned, you've got kind of some built-in clientele as well. You can no, go back to the companies where you installed and say, hey, this is something else that we do. Right. We're not trying to replace their IT people. We're trying to enhance and, yeah. and do some of the things that are a little menial, maybe a little hard for them to offer the resources for. Yeah. So with the technologies that you guys uh, utilize on a day-to-day -day basis and you're installing, you know, one of the big things that comes to mind for me is supply chain. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, tell, tell us about that because most of those chips and whatever else, you know, goes into the technology for the most part are, are manufactured in China. So talk to us about the supply chain issues or, or other part, you know, maybe sure. not just China, but... Well, yeah. you know, Taiwan actually uh, a lot comes from there, which makes me very, very nervous about the Chinese uh, discussion about Taiwan. Uh, if China were to do what they think they want to do, uh, they would have us by the verbial, proverbial, you know what. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously, we've got a lot of construction going on right now here in Phoenix to build 
chip manufacturing between Intel and, of course, the Taiwan semiconductor plant being built here right now. But those take four to five years to get going and bring online. It's not an immediate solution. It is a huge, huge problem. To put it in perspective, I'll give you a real simple example. One of our manufacturers in the nurse technology business, the healthcare business, uh, they uh, have 3,200 different products that go into building their products. In other words, SKUs that they buy. Uh, out of that 3,200, there are only five parts that they're having trouble getting. So it sounds, well, that problem's not that big, <laughs> except those five parts all happen to be chips, and they all happen to be the critical chips in the most critical products. So we can put all the devices on the wall, we can get all the systems out ready to go, but if we can't put in the control systems, which those chips go in, we don't have a system. Yeah. We're down, and we keep the construction from finishing. It's a big, big deal. In one particular case, they have a $7 part, $7 chip that goes into equipment. Uh, one particular piece of equipment, they sell it for $300. $7 part and a $300 piece of equipment. The latest quote I got this last week that they're getting for the same chip, the, the lowest quote was $900 per chip for a $7 chip and two or three other sources up to $1,800. They sell the part for $300. What do you do? Yeah. with that right i it, it it's and this is one little example and it's multiplied by hundreds of times in our business and across the world right now this it's not just about ships on the dock it's yeah. not just about trucks and trains uh it's it's about the little stuff it makes to make the stuff that takes to make the stuff this is not going away soon i uh, wish it was we had hoped and we've been told that by the first of this year life would be better it's not uh, to some extent, it's gotten worse in the first couple of months of this year. Uh, we're starting to see a little light at the end of the tunnel with some of the simpler products. But the complex stuff, the things that make everything run, everything work, like your car, those chips and all those Fords sitting in lots somewhere where they can't deliver them, it, it's this is something we'll face. So what are we doing about it? And the answer is you can't just switch products. Our, our products in the healthcare business are all UL listed, so they just can't go out and build without going through back through UL and getting it all approved again. So what we've been doing is we had bought ahead in some things. We've been robbing Peter to pay Paul. We've been taking this job and building that job because this job wasn't ready and all that, but now we've run out of Peter's, and Peter wants his stuff back. <laughs> so that only works for so long. And so now we're having those hard conversations about delay. You wanted it now. I know you wanted it now. You know, fortunately for us in the construction industry, there are plenty of other trades that are holding things up too. Right. From they can't get garage doors for homes. They can't get uh, appliances, air conditioners. We can't get uh, drywall and lumber and people to put it in. So yeah. we're one of many, right? But what does that do for cash flow? What does that do for overhead? What does that do for everything else that you're committed to? And the answer is it's painful. Yeah. Uh, it is very painful. The PPP money from a year ago, year and a half ago, we didn't need it as desperately then as we need it now. Yeah. So if you did it and you got it and you hung on to it, don't blame those guys that hung on to it, didn't need it at the time, because we're using it now, keeping yeah. our people employed, keeping our people going. And you better have good cash. You better have had a lot in the bank. You better have a good line of credit. And you better have people around you in the financial that are willing to work with you. And tell them what's going on. Tell them the truth. Yeah. Uh, so we're doing all of those those things, and we're crossing our fingers, we're sitting on those crossed fingers, and we're praying. Yeah. There's no easy answer to this. 
Yeah. I mean, that, you just answered what I was going to ask is, is, you know, what it ultimately leads to is a cash flow issue. Yeah. Because if you can't finish a job, you don't get paid for it. You've put out the money to buy all this stuff that you bought to pay the people to install it as far as you went, but you didn't get all the way finished because you're still missing some parts. Yes. So it, it puts it puts everybody in a tough spot. And you're absolutely right. It's the first time that I've thought about it or had somebody mention that way the PPP money and thinking, I never needed it, but I'm just going to sit on it for now and see what, what happens. But now you do see the reason for it well, being used. It. Yeah. And a lot of people, others too. I mean, that money from the government cleaned up a lot of balance sheets, let's be honest. I yeah. mean, there were some industries that needed it desperately and used it right away. And I think the food service industry and hospitality probably yeah. were amongst those. There were other industries like ours that uh, saw it as a opportunity to clean up your balance sheet a little bit. And you can criticize us for that. But the reality is uh, we did poke it away. We didn't go spend it. And we're now spending it. It's helping keep things afloat. It's helping keep our people employed. So I'm a bit of a fan. I know what it did to our economy. I know that the, a lot of what we're facing right now with inflation is due to that. Uh, but you know, there's some things you just got to work through. I've done. I've been managing through a lot of recessions in my lifetime. Yeah. And uh, they're all there. Yes, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You just don't always know if it's a train or <laughs> good news or sunshine. <laughs> yeah. And we're at that point right now. Well, yeah, I'll say something that in the world that we're in right now, I think that anything that I say about these types of things comes off as political. This mm. is not a political statement. Mm. I think the PPP is separate from all of the other stuff that came later, the second yes. round, all that kind of stuff. That, I think, is really what's driving our economy and giving us some problems today economically. I think the PPP was the right call at mm. the right time. And the smart business owners held on to it for when they needed it, right? They took it when it was there because if I don't take it, it's going to be gone. And if I need it in the future, then I'm screwed. So I'm going to go ahead and take it, right? And right. people criticized them for taking it and, and thinking they don't need it. There are other businesses that you know probably did need it worse and didn't get it. And so I understand the criticism, but I think the PPP was used the right way and is actually kind of helping businesses survive today. I agree. The second round is what's causing some of the economic issues, the inflation, those sorts of things. And it's it's not just the second round. There's the ERTC, so it's the employment tax credit yeah. that uh, is a whole other level of government just throwing money at things. Uh, yeah. You know, government doesn't really do much well. They do have a role. I think you're right about that first round. We were, we were in a pickle. I mean, we really – there wasn't a lot of choice. Yeah. Uh, this We shut the darn economy down. Well, who shut it down? The government shut it down. Yeah. So really, they're the only answer to, but there's got to be a limit. You have to shut those things off and that spigot off as quickly as you can and let our economy do the job. Let the, let the small businesses, let the medium businesses get back to capitalism. Let us fix it because we know what to do. Yeah. But we need to be given the freedom to do it in. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much time you've got, but you get second for another quick story related yeah. to, to cash and balance sheets and so forth. You know, the government comes in and, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the things I'm on the, the uh, Chamber of Commerce board here because I believe that we have to have a voice. And uh, there are not many good ideas that come from any level of government. The IRS uh, has a rule that they had in place several years ago, but they didn't enforce it. And that was in the construction business. If it wasn't installed, you couldn't claim it as, as income. 
and so uh, we put off as long as we could. And finally, about a year and a half ago, they said, we're going to start enforcing this. You need to get all that stuff off your books. Well, in our world, we might have two or $3 million at any one time and products sitting in a warehouse ready to go to the job site. But I billed for it. I got paid for it. I got the cash, but I can't show it on my balance sheet and I can't show it in our P&L. And so all of a sudden, my P&L that used to look great, it sucks. It doesn't look like it used to. So we've had to get used to almost having two sets of books, the one that the IRS wants to see, <laughs> and then the ones that's the reality of the business. This is what yeah. it would look if they hadn't gotten in the middle of it and screwed it up. Because yeah. it makes absolutely no sense what they put on. And these are the burdens. It's just one small example of the burdens that government has a tendency to place on small businesses. And so I'm a bit, a bit of a proponent. I'm watching out for these things. Maybe since I'm over 60 now, I don't care anymore about what people think of me. So it's easier to speak <laughs> out. Nobody's going to cancel me, yeah. right? Uh, not the way I have our businesses set up. Get, good luck. Give it a shot. You know, we do a lot for the police, by the way. Yeah. And uh, I'm a huge proponent, having a, had a father that was a police officer. So we fly the thin blue line flag out front of our business. We buy lunch every year for the Tempe police officers and all of them. And uh, we've done other programs to support them. We have uh, fundraisers and et cetera. And I, you know, I could get canceled for that, right? And, and and a lot of people that I've asked to help won't do it because they might get canceled. I don't, I'm sorry, I don't care. No. At, at this point in my life, I know what's right. I, need, I know what needs to be done. I know what it takes to have a civil society. And I know my business flourishes in a civil society. And so I'm gonna just stand up. I, told somebody today, I think one of the burdens of wisdom, one of the burdens of age is the responsibility we bear to teach the younger generations the truth, not the version of the truth that they've been given necessarily by those of the educators, but the realities of the truth. And uh, I think we need to sometimes just be willing to speak up, take a little risk. And that's what I've decided to do. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, honestly, I could care less for our listeners, for you, for anybody, what side of the political aisle really anybody's on. I could care less, right? But we've got to understand specifically the young people. I've got young kids. Or, mm -hmm. I mean, they're adults now. I mean, they're 19 and 22 or 22 and almost 19. They've got to understand that this is a very loud minority mm. that is speaking as though they're the majority. And it happens on both sides of the political of aisle, right? And so that you're right. It's there's there's education that needs to happen to where people realize that just because you see it on Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat or wherever you're seeing it, wherever you're getting your news or you know, people's opinions, those are just very loud people who have a voice. Whereas most of our country is very center of the aisle, support our troops, support our, you know, police officers, support Every person's life is important. You know, they, they, everybody supports all those kinds of things, or I should say the majority of people support it, regardless of what their political leanings are. Mm. But the, the loud min minority makes us feel as though that's not the case. Right. I, I spoke before coming here today with a very good friend. We were talking about the subject of DEI, and I understand the value of it. But I grew up in the 70s, 60s and 70s. I saw uh, the march in Selma. I saw these things happening. I saw the, the civil rights movement. And we made such tremendous progress. And I, like 
most everybody in my generation bought in deeply into the Martin Luther King concept of uh, the content of character rather than the yeah. color of skin. And I'll be darned if I'm going to use any other measure to hire. And we were talking today about that, that, uh, you know, I'm looking for people that with character, I don't really care about any of the rest. You come to me with willingness and character and some values and I'll teach you the business. I don't care where you, what your background is. I really think that's what Martin Luther King was after. No doubt about it. But we're going backwards. We're regressing from that. And when I brought that up to him, something I saw in this organization of his, he said, well, I have to accommodate these younger people that are coming in with these ideas and these passions. Uh, Why? I said, don't, what if they're wrong? What if they're well-meaning, but they're going to take us a wrong path? Don't we have a responsibility to show them the alternative and give them the bigger picture of why this may not be such a great idea. The idea of quotas, the idea of putting people in boxes, the idea of pitting each other against each other scares the daylights out of me as a business owner. I want our people to look way past that. I want them to care about skill. I want them to care about their character. I want them to care about the values that they share and let that be the measurement of success because I think that's what that's what translates to our customers is that. I don't think any of the rest of it that we talk about and this minority you're talking about makes such a big deal about, that doesn't translate to our customers. They want results. They want performance, right? Yep. I, my, our company reflects this area that we live in, yep. right? And, and I figured from that point of me- measurement, we're doing our job. Absolutely. Well, I think there are so many other things that we could talk about with your business. We didn't get to your hiring practices. I mean, you just alluded to a little bit there, but and how difficult it is to hire today. But that'll have to be for the sequel to this uh, to this interview. So I've, I really appreciated the conversation. Appreciate you coming in, being passionate about your business, being passionate about your views, and uh, and sharing that with our listeners. Oh, you're welcome. I enjoyed it very much. And a sequel sounds like fun. Sounds good. Thank you, Mike. You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, proudly hosted by Austin Peterson and Landon Mance. Austin and Landon are comprehensive financial planning professionals specializing in financial, estate, and succession planning for small business owners. Austin and Landon have offices in Scottsdale, Arizona, and Las Vegas, Nevada, and represent clients in 14 states throughout the country. Join Austin, Landon, and the Featured Tycoons live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. right here on Business Radio X and your favorite podcast platform.